Hello and welcome to Fourth Estate, a show about journalism. We're coming to you from Teresia in Sydney on the Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network, and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. I'm Anthony Dockrell. If I say the word Africa to you, what kinds of images and stories come to mind? Outside of the wildlife and the incredible geography, what images do you think of and why? On the rare occasions when Africa turns up in our news, what kind of story was it? Was it a positive news story or one of disaster and dysfunction? Did you feel you got the whole story or just a snapshot of chaos? A new book called Borderland explores why the news we see, hear and read on Africa always seems to follow familiar themes and tropes. Borderland was written by Dr. Chrysanthi Yotis. She is a lecturer in journalism from the University of South Australia and a former host of this program. Chrysanthi Yotis has also travelled extensively through Africa and has a deep understanding of the continent and how our media is failing us and, more importantly, the people who live there. Dr. Chrysanthi Yotis, welcome back to Fourth Estate. Hi, Anthony. It's great to be back. Now, look, earlier on in the book, Borderland, you wrote, I discovered in 2011 journalism is necessary but not enough. I mean, as a journalist, that sounds like an existential crisis, was it? And and what brought you to this realisation? Look, it was a bit of an existential crisis, to be honest. And I struggled for a long time after entering academia full-time in whether this was something that I could do because journalism is a is a life commitment. You know, it's a it's it's a whole a whole body experience and it takes up all your waking moments and and you really do commit to it as an identity. However, when I was in Sudan, just after the Sudan, South Sudan split, so this was mid twenty eleven Everything that I had been reading up to that point had talked about the Sudan, South Sudan split as a positive thing. And, you know, it had been really backed by the US as a solution to the ongoing conflict in the Sudan, which has existed ever since colonization. And so I was really shocked to find that actually the conflict on the border, in the oil rich region in the border, hadn't been even ceased, hadn't even ceased, you know, with the political decision that had been taken about the split and that all of these people who were ethnically southern Sudanese but living in the north had been made stateless and there was no solution for this and journalists weren't being alerted to this situation because it was deemed too complex to explain. Because the international organisations, you know, the 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 refugee organisations that were supporting these people didn't have a solution. They weren't willing to tell pe- to tell journalists about it, and that's that's not the role of journalism. Journalism isn't to just report what experts have already decided. It's about letting the public into the conversation. So therefore, you know, something's going wrong at a fundamental level here. So the journalists were just parroting back a a simplistic view on the situation. Well, they were parroting back what they were being told. And because the 
international organizations, you know, the International Organization for Migration and the NGOs who were facilitating the refugee crisis at that time or um, returnee crisis, as it was termed, because they hadn't decided what the solution was. They weren't even telling journalists about the situation. I only found out about this situation because I was trying to catch a river barge down the Nile River, which is the way that, you know, poor people travel. That was the only reason I found out about the situation. Africa is the second largest continent in the world, and and it's a home to some 1.4 billion people. But it's fair to say our media gives Africa very little attention. And, And when it does, it's normally done through foreign correspondence, the journalistic equivalent of Rick Stein doing a, a documentary traveling through Spain, you know, informed, but alien, embedded, but also transitory. Is it a fair summary of the problem with with being a foreign correspondent? Look, I think that there is a lot of good foreign correspondence that we can't dismiss, and it's so important. And some some really important foreign correspondence has taken place. Unfortunately, that foreign correspondence is really hard to do. And so often we do get simplified narratives and, you know, we get more simplified narratives than is helpful. So, you know, there's this urge to talk about Timbuktu and to talk about the journey to Timbuktu, which is like a stereotype, as you say, you know, Rick Stein sort of reporting, even in the midst of conflict in Mali, this sort of journey to Timbuktu trope becomes a norm of foreign correspondence. And that's something that has to change. You know, we have to stop talking about, yeah, the second largest area of our world as simply a place for Western adventure, because that then feeds into the whole idea of continued Western exploitation and dominance, which which we still see with all sorts of mineral trade, with all sorts of political situations in Africa. Look, I want to return to these tropes, but I do want to stick with the point with the foreign correspondent for the for the moment. And what I see with the with the foreign correspondents and the stories that we get from Africa is that they're through the prism of disaster and misery. And and this is not an accident, I think, from what I'm seeing in your book. You, you see that we are trapped looking at Africa through the prism of colonization. Can you unpack what you mean by this and how that mindset has blinded us to the real stories going on? Yeah. So essentially what we have in in the history of foreign correspondence in Africa is – foreign correspondence developing at the same time as imperialism in Africa. So, you know, the first famous foreign correspondent was Henry Morden Stanley, or one of the first famous ones, you know, author of the phrase Dr. Livingston, I presume. And he was actually paid by the Belgian king to create you know, sort of reality show of the time, traveling through the Congo, but at the same time representing Congolese as inferior and therefore justifying Belgian imperialism in the Congo, which, you know, led to horrific histories that we still see the effects of today. So at the time, rubber was really important and it led to the red rubber trade, so named because Congolese people would have their hands chopped off if they refused to work 
on the rubber trees and instead, you know, wanted to work in their farms, feeding their family. So we have this horrible history of foreign correspondents developing at the same time as colonisation. And so from thence we had decolonisation, but we didn't really examine the frames of reporting and journalists report in frames. So all through the period of decolonisation, we still had this idea of Western intervention being helpful, Western intervention being needed. And that's something that has, you know, is questionable, is something that should be questioned, that journalists should be questioning. And we still see that there is a overemphasis today on what is the Western response to these real disasters that are occurring. You know, the the on the conflict in the Congo has been going since ninety four. Like this is a disaster. You know, there were another forty people killed just overnight in an attack on a refugee camp. Horrible things do happen. Journalists don't make this up. What I'm talking about in the book is the fact that the reportage isn't complex enough, isn't taking into account local realities, but it's instead stuck in this very Western-focused idea of what Africa is. And also doesn't really take into account Western culpability, only talks about Western potential solutions. So it's not grounded and also isn't wide-ranging enough. Let's talk about the way this colonisation has been displayed by the coverage coming out of Africa. You list a number of tropes that can be found in our news and in our literature. Can you describe these tropes and how they distort the narratives we have coming out of Africa? You've already touched on one about the about the journey being, you know, something heroic, but there's other tropes as well, isn't there? Yeah, absolutely. Actually, the trope that I identify as the most destructive for journalism is what I call the lacuna trope, which is a basically this idea that dark nothingness is normal, that basically heart of darkness, you know, it, it, it really again comes from the Congo and, you know, that's why I chose to go to the Congo for my research because it had this very strong trope around the heart of darkness. And essentially what that does is it means that Instead of as journalists seeking to understand the situation as it exists on the ground, what we're actually accepting is that we can't understand it, that, you know, that Africa is chaos, that actually this doesn't make sense. It's it's this, yeah, that darkness reigns and it's not really something that we can understand. It's just madness. And... Again, going back to the fact that there are very good foreign correspondents, Richard Dowden, who was the Economist foreign correspondent, he and some of his colleagues at the time talked about the fact that, you know, if they had described something as chaos, they hadn't worked hard enough. And what you see from many foreign correspondents who have worked full-time in Africa is that in their memoirs, they really do admit to this. You know, there's a real element of Mia culpa that I I didn't understand how little I understood when I went in there. You know, Blaine Harden talks about it being normal to consider Africa like a gloomy question mark 
And these things aren't normal. This isn't what journalism is about. And that's really what I'm trying to highlight in the book. And I know it may come across as somewhat overemphasizing the negatives, but we have to excise these ghosts of that colonial thinking. We really have to be very conscious of them because it's so easy to to slip up and to write in frames that we are used to when we're writing under time pressure and under the pressure of trying to deal with what we've just witnessed, which can often be really horrific and shocking. Yes, and while you're talking about this, it strikes me, imagine if, if Australian journalists covered the gun deaths in America the way that we cover you know, situations in Africa. It, it would be just a chaos, unexplained deaths and, and no political dimension, no social dimension to what's going on. Yeah, that's a great analogy. Absolutely. We just wouldn't allow it to to be talked about without those extra elements, that political and social dimension, because we're searching for solutions. Like, why is this happening in America? You know, what are the legal ramifications? What are the social ramifications of the availability of guns? Why is it part of the American psyche to to have that that legal right to arms. We we go into the history, we go into the politics of it, and that just isn't done with the many situations that are happening in the over 50 countries in Africa. Having said that, we have to remember, like when we talk about Africa, yeah, there are over 50 countries in the continent and we generally only hear about a few. So even though we do have that overview of a place of despair and disaster, usually we're only hearing about a few places. Now, the title of your book, Borderland, is one loaded with many connotations. I'd be interested if you could explain what it invokes in you and why you chose that title. Mm, Great question. So, there are a couple of things with the word borderland. So, when I went to the east of the Democratic Republic of Congo and I was just in Goma, which is a city on the Rwandan border. You can see the geography, the political, social, cultural geography change immediately as soon as you cross the border from Gizieni, which is the Rwandan side, to Goma. And what has been created there is its own world. It's the... Long, one of the longest running and most expensive and biggest UN peacekeeping missions in the world. And that has created its own social geography. You know, the town of Goma went from 100,000 people to over a million in just 20 years. And that's all been fueled by the conflict economy. And that conflict economy includes things like, you know, the all the UN and INGO workers going to the lake for cheap $20 cocktails every Wednesday night and the trivia nights and the pizza nights. And, you know, it is actually a place where you have very strict borders even inside the place. So you have cafes that only the expats go to and cafes that only the locals go to. And you have the border between the refugee camp and the city with with the refugee camp becoming more and more part of the city. And so essentially you have a very stratified space, a space that is separate from the rest of 
of the Congolese countryside, but also very much connected to it. You have politics which are local and international in that there is a lot of anger at the UN mission after so many years not being able to do anything in terms of stopping the conflict. And at the same time, the the lavish lifestyle getting more and more lavish. There's, there's more and more exclusive hotels going into Goma. But I also see those borders in all global cities, right? You see those borders more and more in a, in a city like Sydney. And so this is something that a lot of commentators talk about, that, you know, experimentation on the periphery. So what happens in these borderlands ends up coming back to the metropolises, to use, you know, sort of colonial words. And you also see that we have these borders in our minds between who gets to live well and who gets just bare life. You know, like if people are surviving, even if they're just barely living in refugee camps, well, that's okay for them. Let's just keep them as far away from us as possible. And so you get these border zones. You know, like in Australia, we've seen the excising of our islands. We've seen our refugees pushed to Indonesia and Nauru. And, you know, in Europe, you see the refugees in Greek islands, which have then become more and more run by the international community as opposed to the Greek state. And you see things like in America, um, you know, the border zone between America and Mexico is called a Mexica. You know, it's a completely, it's its own zone. So we have to take into account this new reality and we need to take into account that modern warfare produces more refugees than casualties. You know, that's that's what's happening and look, the Australian context that you brought in there, I think, is really interesting. I mean, borders have been central to our politics this century, you know, and namely the fear of our borders being crossed by the other. Now, foreign correspondents are a safe way to observe the other, but it's, it strikes me in this conversation that they also feeding into this fear, this fear of other people coming across our borders. There's something going on here with the whole enterprise of of foreign correspondence that is that is actually feeding into fear. Yeah, absolutely. That's such a great point. And this is something that I talk to about in the book, especially towards the end of the book, because at the end of the day, journalists write for a public, right? We write it the the act of journalism is embedded in this idea of the fourth estate, funnily enough, hence the hence what we're talking about today. But the fourth estate re- relates to a citizenship. And who is the citizen that foreign correspondents are writing for? You know, if we, if foreign correspondents are not actually considering the people that they are writing about as part of their audience, if they're not thinking about a global political community, which I argue they should, because otherwise what is the point of being a foreign correspondent, then they are going to be othering the the subjects of their stories. And so essentially if we are thinking about 
the subjects of foreign correspondence as others over there, then it is going to feed into the fear because it is scary. It is scary to realise how unequal the world is and that we're lucky enough to be on this side of the world. But, you know, how long is that luck going to last? And if we're not talking about global citizens, if we're not talking about global audiences, then we're going to keep feeding into that that fear of the other. We need to write not only for our audiences back in Sydney or Perth or Adelaide or wherever, we need to also write for the subjects of our stories and write with them and to them as part of our audience. This is one of the things that I argue in the book. I think that that will create a better sense of the way that we are interconnected in this world. Do you think the profession of foreign correspondent is salvageable? Yeah, I do. I do. I really do. A lot of people argue against this and they say that, well, actually, we can, why do we need foreign correspondence when in a global media economy, you know, we can get reports direct from local journalists on the ground. And I think that we need more of those reports direct from local journalists in the gro- on the ground. And we need local journalists to be partners with foreign correspondents, not just fixers as they have been in the past, but to be seen as actual partners and respected in that way. And to have their knowledge respected and properly paid for as well. That's another big part of it. Because if knowledge comes cheap, it isn't properly respected. However, I do think that there is something about the foreign correspondent which actually speaks to something deep inside us as human beings, which is that we can connect with the other. We can connect with people whose situation in life is very different to our own. And if we do that, then that is actually something noble in human beings. And why wouldn't we want to foster that as a society? And why wouldn't we want to take advantage of what foreign correspondents can offer? A lot of people, I mean, talk about traveling overseas as a formative part of their life, you know, when they really learnt things about the world and about themselves at the same time. And foreign correspondence does that as well. It's a medium that allows us to to grow and to learn as a society. And we are one global society. You know, climate change and these ongoing conflicts affect us all. You know, resources, our, our resources are dwindling and becoming part of these illegal shadow economies. We, we do need to address certain situations as a world community and foreign correspondents can help create that sense of a world community is what I argue in the book. And so you really what you're arguing for here is that foreign correspondents need to become more embedded but also more collaborative in how they're working on their stories and working in the regions that they're they're traveling through. And that strikes me as a, a practical way to get out of what is the the fundamental problem with it, which is that the foreign correspondent is can also be categorized as an adventurer slash tourist. But how how embedded do you think they need to get into local communities? Look, I think that one of the great joys of being a journalist is that, you know, with your notepad and yours even as little as a smartphone, but hopefully a few more bits of tech than that. You have an 
access all areas pass. You know, this is the thing about journalism. Journalism is able to speak to the lowest of the low and the highest of the high and has a, and on behalf of the public has a right and a responsibility to do so. And so essentially being more embedded in the communities is absolutely part of it and we can do that. So as part of my research, I spent half my time in a local hotel and half my time in an expat hotel. And the types of conversations and the way that the political situation was being framed to me were completely different. And I think that that's a really simple way foreign correspondents can take advantage of that. Now, this is not to dismiss the fact that conflict zones are high-risk areas and we actually see journalists targeted more and more. I'm not dismissing that fact at all. However, there are different security strategies and embedding yourself in the community is one security strategy. So that is part of it. But also part of it is, is like you say, that partnership and being more aware of what knowledge your local, the local journalists have and can offer. And yeah, I, the other great thing about foreign correspondence is that you have the gift of comparison because you are able to to work across different areas and to see how conflicts connect with each other and the dynamics which are similar and different in different border zones. I think that that's something that, that foreign correspondence really can take up as a challenge of reporting. And Chris Masters last week on Fort for State made an interesting point about all of this when he was talking about being the criticism of being embedded and he was saying like a good journalist will retain their independence. So a foreign correspondent could go into, into an area, work closely with people, embed themselves, but at the same time retain their journalistic independence. Oh, absolutely. And we expect this of journalists at all sorts of different levels. You know, a council reporter will be embedded with the the local councillors, but they will still retain their independence. You know, business reporter is embedded in the business community. A sports reporter is embedded in the sports community. A journalist's first responsibility is to the public. And so if you know that your public is both the Afghani populace and the Australian populace, you are going to retain your independence. Now, one other thread that was in your book that I think we should unpack, and you have touched on it already, is you're not just wanting foreign correspondents to get more, get their hands more dirty in the local scene. You're also wanting them to have a more global, interconnected approach to telling stories as well. And and you actually made an, there's an example which I think is a really powerful one that it's already happening and we see it in financial reporting, where the interconnectedness of the world is made explicit. How do you see a, a more global interconnected approach to storytelling working in that grassroots nature of, of foreign correspondence that you, you're also wanting to see? Yeah, so it's about completing the circle. So we know that inter yeah that finance are global and that they they work on a global level and but what we don't see is how that then translates very specifically into the way that people are recruited on the ground into 
say artisanal mining, illegal shadow economies. For example, in the Congo, you have gold being transferred out of the Congo and sold on to the national market in Uganda. You know, smuggled illegally out of the Congo to be sold in Uganda. Why? Why is that such a lucrative trade? This is a question that needs to be asked. Who are the people who are doing that smuggling? How does that relate to the conflict? When you have people in Goma protesting against the UN mission there, which is there to ostensibly protect them against the militias, what is this saying about UN governance? So basically what I'm asking is for us to look at what is happening on the ground and then ask the questions up the chain. That's been really missing in the past. For example, when the US introduced a law to try and minimize conflict militias' involvement in mining so that we can sort of have a trace on mining, on, on minerals that are mined and where they come from and sort of it to be conflict mineral free is the, is the ideal. They never looked at the fact that how would all these artisanal miners, so all these really small-scale local miners who may or may not be involved in the militias depending on the local circumstances, how will that affect them? And so you had all these unintended consequences. And so, yeah, basically what I'm saying is if you go from the ground and up, you are going to get different stories and you are going to connect those dots and we need to connect those dots. The more that we are sort of allowing experts to run our lives, the weaker democracy becomes. And it strikes me too that what what you're arguing for is a, a more richer storytelling coming from our journalists. But I, I can see pushback coming from the other direction. So, you know, we also know the media is a world of clickbait and engagement. You know, the, an editor, you know, saying, you know, if it bleeds, it leads. How should a journalist who wants to take on a new way of, of doing their craft and telling their stories, how, how should they push back? Yeah, that's a really tough question. And this is, this is the problem. It really can't... I mean... It kind of has to happen one journalist at a time in that you have to, every journalist can go into a situation and see their subjects not as victims, but as equals and not, you know, and that, and that helps with stopping that othering. So it can happen on that level. On the level of, of if it bleeds, it leads and getting around that mindset, I, you know, there is nothing to say that we're not going to report disasters. Of course, we have to report disasters. Of course, we have to report the conflict and what's happening. The difference is building up trust in our readership, which is lost by explaining what is going on. And I actually think that that's an economic argument. Like people want to be informed, but they're not being informed. They're not feeling informed. They're getting all this competing information from various YouTube channels. And what we need to find is a is an authentic professionalism about informing people about these global, local connections. I think that audiences would really go for that. And I guess the the test is to try it out and see if that's, if that's true. But this is a conversation that needs to be had 
it, and it needs all of us to be having this conversation, including audiences. Otherwise, it will be very hard for individual journalists to, to act differently. Very hard indeed. Well, look, I think it's a, a really interesting book. And, and I think one of the things that really hit me too was not just how clearly the reporting coming out of Africa is lacking, but a lot of the, the tropes and a lot of the the structures that you have raised, I'm seeing that locally as well. So these structures of colonization, especially when it comes to reporting stories within Australia, you can see that happening. You can see it around The Voice. You can see it around stories around what's going on at Alice Springs. So, you know, this is something that a lot of journalists should be listening to. And if there was a journalist listening to this this podcast, what's a couple of things that you would like them to start to, to think about and, and to consider? One thing that I think we all have to consider is whether we are going into a situation expecting to provide a solution or expecting to find the knowledge in the subjects that we're talking to. So I think that it's like you raised the point of Alice Springs, you raised the point of the voice, that thank you so much for raising those because you're right, these these reporting techniques that I'm talking about are applicable to any unequal situation. And so it's really about respecting the fact that people may be powerless or have less power, but they still know exactly how they're being screwed over. So respecting the knowledge that exists in people who have been acted upon by these unequal situations and going into that situation knowing that you are actually looking for people to provide you with that knowledge and you're not just relying on expert voices and people already with power to provide you with that knowledge. Shoe leather reporting. And, you know, this does take more time and it is difficult and it does take building up trust and you're not going to get it right the first time. So I guess the second thing that I would say is have faith in yourself, have faith in the process because you're not you're, it's not easy and you will stumble and that doesn't mean that you that you give up. That just means that we have a lot of work to do. Well, Dr. Chrysanthiotis, thanks for being on Forfa State. Thank you so much, Anthony. And thanks for listening to the program. This edition was recorded at the studios of Tourist Yar and heard across the country on the Community Radio Network. Forfa State is produced with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Thanks to the Foundation for their continuing support. Make sure you subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts and we'll be back next week with more media, politics and a lot in between. I'm Anthony Dockrell. Thanks for listening.